Well, good morning, Fullerton Free. Uh, I'm Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff and excited to jump in with you into a brand new series this morning. I'm hoping that you had a chance over the last couple of weeks to pick up one of our Daniel journals. And if you're new with us or if you didn't get a chance, just to let you know, uh, one of our habits has sort of become over the last year or so, maybe two years, um, to order these, uh, these books that have both the Word of God on one page and then a journal page on the facing side so that we can record the things that God says to us as we're studying His Word. We've bought a copy of this Daniel journal for you and would love to put that in your hands. If you uh, are you at home today or you're watching this and you don't have a copy, uh, you can contact the church office and we'll set up a time for you to come and grab one of those or we can mail it to you or whatever. We want to make sure everybody has one. Before we dive into the text of Daniel 1, I want to take just about two minutes and kind of set up why we're studying the book, where it fits in the flow of everything else we've been studying. For those of you who are a regular part of the Fullerton Free family, you'll know that about a year ago, uh, we began talking about these pillars of vision, pillars that sort of describe who we believe that God has called us to be as a community. And then over the last year, we've kind of been digging into what exactly that means. So one of the pillars, the first one, is radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. And we studied the books of Habakkuk, and we studied the book of Second Thessalonians, looking at what it means to have this deep and uh, strong confidence in who God is and what he's promised. <clears throat> and then the way in which peace not only becomes present in our lives, but the way in which that peace can radiate out into the lives of other people. The second pillar of our vision has to do with revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. And we studied the book of Ephesians in, in detail, and we looked at the idea that when we recognize the, the solidarity we have with our fellow men and women in brokenness and a need for saving grace from the Lord Jesus, we also see this kindness that grows in us, not just a kindness that uh, stirs in us a willingness to be nice to one another, but a Kindness that is revolutionary in that it transforms our community and our neighborhoods and our families. And that's rooted in this idea of recognizing that all of us desperately need a savior. Our third pillar is the idea of prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith. And over the last couple of uh, month and a half or so, we've been studying the book of James. That's our most recent study. And in James, we were looking at the idea of demonstrable faith, the idea that it's one thing to claim you believe things, but it's another thing entirely to have what you believe be made manifest in your actions and in your attitudes and your deeds towards others. And so as we looked at James, we were learning that we can't just be hearers of the word. We've got to be doers of the word. We've got to let that belief uh, take flesh, if you will. And now as we turn to Daniel, we do so with an eye towards prophetic engagement, <clears throat> prophetic engagement. Sorry, my throat here. <clears throat> I, I think I'm okay, but maybe my water bill, if you don't mind. Um, prophetic engagement is not the idea of telling the future. Sometimes when you think about prophecy, uh, we're thinking about, you know, someone who's a fortune teller, someone who can say, you know, there's a storm coming or whatever. You are lovely. Thank you, Billy. Um, sometimes we're thinking about prophecy in terms of like future telling, but biblically, when we talk about prophecy, we're just talking about someone who is truth telling. Now, sometimes that's a prophet who's communicating what God has said about the future, but most often the prophets didn't declare things about the future. They just declared things that were true that God had already said. Let me take a swig of this here. So for us, when we talk about prophetic engagement, we're talking about the ability to speak into the life of our world, to speak into the lives of our neighbors, to declare truth. But the only way we can do that is if we've laid a foundation of demonstrable faith. If we've been living a life that proves the truth of what we claim to believe, right? Then we afford ourselves the opportunity in the lives of our neighbors and even those who don't believe the same things we do to be able to speak truth in a prophetic way. So that's prophetic engagement, right? Rooted in demonstrable faith. And we come to Daniel because in my opinion, Daniel is the best example 
of young men who did exactly this, who had a prophetic influence in a pagan culture, not by trying to force their will upon the culture, but by laying a groundwork of demonstrable faith and endearing themselves to their captors. We're going to see that over the next six weeks as we study this. Now, Just so you know, we're not studying the whole book of Daniel in our Sunday services. We're going to study the narrative portion. So the first half of this book, the first six six chapters are uh, are narrative, their story. And you'll recognize some of these stories. Um, I would encourage you at home to be reading a chapter ahead. So we're going to study it every week, a different chapter. This week, chapter one. Next week, chapter two. The week after that, chapter three. Do me a favor and read ahead because these are long chapters and it'll be great if you're somewhat familiar with them before we study them together. What we've decided not to do in our Sunday services is to study the prophetic section, which sits at the end, uh, both because of the fact that there's a lot of uh, contention over the prophetic section. It's easy to get confused in some of that. And also because before the end of the year, we want to move on to another study uh, in the course uh, where we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I'll talk about that later. But I do want to let you know that even though we won't be studying the last half of the book of Daniel in our Sunday services, uh, we will be studying the last half of the book of Daniel uh, in a separate teaching time, which we'll tell you more about when we come to the end. So if you're interested in the stuff in chapter 7 through 12, don't worry. We'll have teaching on that as well. You'll be able to dig in and sort of expand your mind to some of those things as well. Our series this time is called Citizens of Distinction. Citizens of Distinction. And the reason we chose that title for this series is that each of us find ourselves in the midst of a very interesting time. We're living in the midst of an interesting time in our culture, in our country, and in our world. And this book will give us the opportunity to ask some really probing questions, both of ourselves, of our responsibility before God, and of our responsibility to our neighbors, what it looks like to be a disciple who is also a faithful and compassionate citizen of whatever city or town or state or country, or even the world that we find ourselves in, that we would be distinct because of our trust in God. So there's my preamble, my setup. Let's dive into Daniel chapter one uh, together, if you don't mind. When we dive in here in the first couple of verses, which we just had read for us a second ago, it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So just to give you a little bit of the setting here, what we have is that uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar comes in with the mightiest military force on the planet at this time. He comes in, he's just uh, laid waste historically to Egypt. Now he's going to come in and he's going to take captive some of the best and the brightest that Judah has to offer. He comes into Jerusalem and he takes these people captive. So the setting as we get into this story is that these young men and most, uh, most commentators and theologians will agree that Daniel and his friends were probably between the ages of 11 and 14. These young men have been ripped forcibly from their homes. They've been taken to a pagan place. They've been ripped not only from their families, but from their friendships, from their synagogues. They've been ripped from their playing fields and from their schools. Everything that they know and everything that they have understood in the first 11 to 14 years of their life has been left behind in Jerusalem. And they've been taken by force through a military campaign, through the death of their king, Jehoiakim, They've been taken to a foreign land to be taught and trained as servants in a pagan kingdom. So I just want you to think of the trauma of that. I want you to think about the drama of it, if you will, and recognizing that in our own lives, we've sort of been a little bit uh, in the midst of a, of an, of a 
kind of a catastrophic year in some ways. I mean, it's been a very heavy year. A lot that we thought 2020 would hold has uh, not turned out the way we thought. Not only dealing with the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, but dealing with the sickness of many more, dealing with masks and all of this, dealing with some of the political upheaval that's happening, dealing with some of the systemic racism that's been on display and the rioting and the fighting and the division and all of the feuding. I want you to recognize that throughout periods of history, God's people have dealt not only with the things we're dealing with, but they've, they've dealt with that same kind of trauma. It's in the midst of some darkness and some difficulty. They were forcibly removed. They've been taken captive. Their king has been overthrown and killed. Their temple items have been removed and placed in a pagan setting. It's in that setting that the story takes place. And, and in moments like that, when things don't go the way, I think sometimes we sort of perceive that if we're following God, everything's going to go the way we want it to go, Right? That everything's going to be sunshine and roses, that everything's going to feel comfortable, that everybody's going to get along. We tend to believe that God's plan will line up with our plan. Does that make sense? So when you dream about what you want 2020 to look like, or maybe what you want 2021 to look like, when you dream about that, you suppose, well, God's plan will probably look a lot like mine. And then in the actual living of life, sometimes things get overturned. Sometimes there's sickness. Sometimes there's death. Sometimes there's the loss of a job. Sometimes there's a loss of relationship. Sometimes there's political upheaval and all of these other things. And in those moments where what's happening in your life practically doesn't look like what you'd want it to look like or doesn't look like what you thought it would look like, there can be a tendency on our part to say, where is God in all this? Did he check out? Is he gone? I, I can guarantee you that there were likely moments where these young men were being dragged away from their homeland into captivity that they were thinking, has God abandoned us? Is God gone? Does he care? Does he see this? Does he see what just happened to our king? Does he see what just happened to our homes? Where is he? And maybe, and again, I don't know every situation of every person who may be watching this this morning, but maybe in the last six to eight months, you found yourself saying, where is God? Does he see me? Does he see this? Does he understand what's happening? I want you to understand that a major theme of this book and a major theme of this chapter is God's presence in the midst of every circumstance. It's easy sometimes for us to say, where is God? And even in the midst of our changing culture, I think you're probably all aware, we've been aware for several years, that our culture is changing. That increasingly churches are getting emptier and emptier. We can look at what's happened in Europe and recognize that the, 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 the places of worship in Europe are largely empty. They're being converted to concert venues and whatever else. We're seeing a decline in church attendance in America. We're seeing that some, t- some of the voices that Christians have, ha- have been able to have in the past is waning. Some of that has to do with the fact that the culture is increasingly secular, that the culture will always sort of be in rebellion against God. But some of it also has to do with the fact that Christians or followers of Jesus have abused our voice. In many places have not revealed Christ accurately. We, we understand that these boys are being taken into captivity in some part and in some measure because God promised this is what he would do if the people of God were not faithful. You could look if you wanted at Leviticus 26. Uh, we can listen to the prophecy of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 39. Listen to what he says here. It's a, it's a perfect description of this. Isaiah 39 verse 6 and following says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Right? 
Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years before this thing happened with Daniel that it would go down exactly the way it had because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 6, Daniel himself reflects upon this. He says, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who were near and those who were far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, that's referring to Leviticus, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. We need to understand here that the tragedy that's befalling these young men in Daniel chapter 1 is happening not only because of the wickedness of Babylon, right, and because of their revolt against the power of God, but it also has to do with the power of God on display. In fact, it says in verse 2, look at it closely, verse 2 of Daniel 1, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God is not absent. God has not absconded himself. God is not indifferent. He's not disappeared from the scene. Even in our trials, even in tribulation, even in our suffering, God is still present. In this particular case, God has delivered his people over to their enemies, just as he said he would. And in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our suffering, it always is beneficial for us to evaluate what part of that is the ongoing secularization or pagan, uh, the pagan nature of the culture in which we live and how much of it is us reaping the rewards of ways in which we have failed to reveal Christ even as we carry his banner. Yes, we are in a time of tumult and change and so it behooves us to pay attention to the example that said her, these boys are taken off into a place. Now, anytime you're in the midst of trauma and trial like this, you have both a practical problem and a theological problem, right? The practical problem is what do I do? What do I do now? Because I'm being dragged off forcibly to Babylon. How do I live in response to that? But the practical problem can't be answered until you've answered the theological problem. The theological problem is, does God see me? Is God in this? Is he present? Is he still sovereign? Does he care? And does he still have an interest in how I conduct my life and how I interact with other people? Sometimes in the midst of suffering, if we've answered the theological question to say God is not present or he does not care, or maybe he doesn't exist, then our practical response will be to sort of try and take control ourselves to try and be God. We are the ones who have to manhandle our culture. We have to manhandle our situation. We have to manhandle our circumstances because we've answered the theological problem wrongly. We've said, God has no power. He will not intervene. He cannot intervene. He does not see me. He does not care. Therefore, I'm the king of my circumstances. It's a wrong theological answer that leads to a wrong practical answer. But when we answer the question correctly, when we recognize that God is still sovereign and is still on the throne, even in the midst of our suffering, sometimes the consequences of our sin, sometimes the consequences of our failure to reveal him well, when we remember that God is still on the throne and that he still cares and that he still has an expectation for us, even in the midst of the consequences of our actions, then our practical response will be driven by our theological response, which says, 
It still matters how I live, even in the midst of suffering and trial. It still matters. Daniel and his friends answered this question well. In this pagan setting, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have a choice to make. They're carried off to Babylon, and the question that they have to answer, the choice they have to make is, uh, it's a bit of a pendulum, and you'll recognize this, this response. They're carried off to a pagan place where they're to be instructed in all kinds of Chaldean learning, which would have included uh, the worship of false gods, it would have included the interpretation of dreams, it would have included astrology, all kinds of things that wouldn't have aligned with the worship of God. They've been dragged off to this place and they have, a, they have a, a question they have to answer and it's this, a choice to make. Are they going to conform to the pagan culture? What that means essentially is that some of us in the midst of a pagan culture, like the culture we live in today, we live in a world that increasingly doesn't care about the Bible, increasingly doesn't care about church attendance, increasingly doesn't care about Jesus and his resurrection, if they even believe in that. And we have a question or an answer we have to make, which is, am I going to conform to the culture? Uh, It's sort of the, uh, the win in Rome response, right? Well, I live in this world where people just don't really care about going to church, so I'm not going to go to church either. I live in a world where people don't really care about the Bible. I can Google it and people tell me all the reasons why it's a waste of my time. And, and it's easy to just sort of conform to the culture, to become like the culture, to blend in. And that's one response. And we've even seen, historically, we've seen whole movements of the church uh, decide to just sort of conform to the culture, historically, over time. We can see that. And you see, typically, the demise of those churches, right? The other response that sometimes happens, it's on the whole other end of the pendulum. In a pagan culture, in the midst of this kind of oppression, the other response, it's not to blend in, but it's to fight the culture, right? Not to blend in with the culture, but to fight the culture, to isolate in some ways, to create your own music and your own video games and your own television programs and your own movies, to isolate, to get into a little bubble and reject or revolt against the culture, to fight the culture. What I'd like you to see here in this text in Daniel chapter 1 is that Daniel and his friends, neither, they, ne- they neither conform to the culture nor fight the culture, but they find a middle way. And this is important because it's exactly the right response for us as well. There is a middle way that isn't conforming with the culture and isn't fighting the culture, but is transforming the culture. And it sits right in the center. It sits right in the center, transforming the culture, not fighting the culture, not conforming to the culture. It's interesting, all throughout the scripture, there is uh, the idea that we are transformed from the inside out, right? We're transformed from the inside out. The Bible never asks us uh, as individuals to sort of get our conduct in order so that our inside will be transformed to faith, right? Jesus says, abide in me and fruit will be produced. So what? It's an internal transformation that leads to external change. The Bible never calls for us to just sort of fake it till we make it. Do the external thing, conform to the rules and requirements so that the inside will be transformed. No, internal transformation leads to external change, right? And that is true not only in an individual level, but it is true in a cultural level as well. When we try and conform the culture, when we try and force it to fit into a a faithful mold without it having faith, we will fail. And it's not really what God's after. When we force people to look spiritual, that method will fail. Daniel and his friends, they, they don't conform and they also are not, uh, they, they are not fighting the culture. It's worth noting here too that when we tend to fight the culture, what ends up happening is that we aren't conformed, but we become deformed, right? We become deformed. What I mean by that is we cease to look like Jesus, 
As followers of Jesus, we become deformed in that Jesus, even though he lived in a time of political unrest, and even though he lived in a time when there was all kinds of wickedness, both in in the Hebrew king that was over him and in his Roman emperors and leaders, there was all kinds of things he could have revolted against. Jesus was gentle and lowly. Jesus was humble, and and he kept the main thing the main thing. When we get so focused on fighting the culture... We become deformed. We cease to look like Jesus. We become angry and bitter and frustrated. We become divided. But there is a middle way, which Daniel and his friends strike upon, which is to see the the culture transformed. They're not conformed to the culture, and they're not revolting or deformed by the culture as as they fight against it, but they work as a transforming agent in the culture. And how they do this? Well, they do it by saying yes to some things and saying no to others. By saying yes to some things and saying no to others. Now that might seem oversimplified, but just look at the text here. It says that when these guys show up, that they're to be trained in all kinds of pagan learning. I've already told you, they didn't say no to that. They don't go, we're not learning astrology. We're not, you're not going to teach us about your false gods. No way. We're, we're Hebrew boys. We're not doing that junk, right? We don't see them argue to the teaching, the assessment, the training. It's interesting here that they change their names. Look at verse 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. For the record, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are God-fearing. They're beautiful, godly Hebrew names. Let me tell you what they mean. Daniel means, God is my judge. Hananiah means, the Lord shows grace. Isn't that cool? Mishael says, who is like God? That's what it means. Who is like God, Mishael means. And Azariah means, the Lord is my help. When they arrive in Babylon, though, it says in verse 7... The chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. They show up there and they, and they say, we're going to change your names. And you would imagine the boys are like, no, don't, don't change our names because we have these beautiful God-fearing names. And the Babylonians say, no, 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 we're going to give you God-fearing names. We're just going to give you God-fearing names that worship our false gods. Just so you know, Belteshazzar means... Bel protects his life. Bel was a false god, pagan god. Shadrach means under the command of Aku, who was a pagan god. Meshach means who is as Aku is, a pagan god. And Abednego means servant of Nebo, a pagan god. Well, it's interesting here that when they're given these pagan names, we don't see Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah fight the system. We don't see them die on a sword. We don't see them jump on a table and cry revolution. They say yes to pagan names. They say yes to pagan training. They say yes to pagan evaluations. They say yes. They go along. But they also say no. There are things they say yes to. I'm reminded of the idea of cooperation versus confrontation. In Romans chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, uh, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Earlier in that same chapter, in Romans 12, 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
That's when he says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There is a call for the followers of Christ to find a peaceable middle ground that sees the culture transformed, not fighting the culture, not exacting revenge, not, not shouting and stomping and storming and cursing, but living peaceable. I'm also reminded of what, what God said to the exiles in Jeremiah 29.4. Jeremiah 29.4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God says through Jeremiah... When you go into a place that doesn't hold the same values as you, when you go into a place that doesn't believe the same things that you believe, it's not worth it to fight everything. And you certainly don't want to conform, but there is a way for that culture to be transformed. And it's by being peaceable. It's by settling down and planting crops and taking on family and becoming a member of that society, a citizen of distinction. And that's what Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are doing. They're finding that middle way. They're not shaking their fists. They're not standing up. By the way, had they stood up on the table and said, we're not taking your stinky names. We're not going to be called Belteshazzar. That's a pagan name. Bel's not even a real God. They would have been killed and they would have lost their opportunity to influence the culture. So they choose a pathway that not only honors God, but provides them opportunity to continue honoring God in the days ahead. I will say that as we look at the world around us, I think there are many who follow Jesus, who've lost their opportunity to speak into the lives of other people because of the way in which they've responded to the culture. They say yes to some things, but they say no to some things also. Let's look at this together. It says in verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He says yes to the training. He says yes to the pagan godless names. He says yes to the evaluation. He says yes to the new living quarters. He says yes to everything as far as they give to us, except in this. He resolves, it says, in himself not to defile himself with the king's food. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what that defilement would have looked like, but he draws a line here at compromising God's law. It may have been uh, the type of food because the Hebrews were, were required to not eat certain kinds of food. The defilement might have been the kind of food that was being offered from the king's table. It might have been about the way it was prepared. So it could have been a perfectly okay kind of food prepared in a wrong way. That would have been a compromise of God's law. Or it might have been the fact that it was used in pagan worship or it might have been the food's history, right? So think about this. We, we don't know exactly because it doesn't say. We don't know if it was the type of food or if it was uh, the way the food was prepared or kind of the history of the food, where the food had been. But for whichever of those, and maybe it was all three, whichever of those, Daniel and his friends look at the food that's being offered them from the king's table, the best food that could be had, and they go, yeah, we can't do that. We can't do that. We say no. They draw the line at essential things, obedience to God's law. Well, like we talked about with prayer a couple of weeks ago, in order to pray in alignment with God's word and God's purposes, we have to know God's word and God's purposes. 
In order for these young men to know what was essential and what was non-essential, what they could say yes to and what they could say no to, they had to know what God's law said. I fear that many of us don't clearly know what God's law says, and therefore we don't know when our rights are being compromised. We don't know when God's law is being compromised. There are a lot of people in our world today that are shaking their fist at the sky, and they're shouting at the government, and they're, uh, they're sort of leaning into civil disobedience, but there is no compromise of God's law as of yet. There may be. That may still be in the days ahead. But we have to know God's law so that we can know when we're being asked to compromise. When we're being asked to compromise God's law, it's absolutely the right thing, the God-honoring thing to say no. And here, that's what Daniel and his friends do. They know the difference between what is essential and what is non-essential, what glorifies God and what doesn't. I would say in our case, if our purpose as ambassadors, as followers of Christ, is to glorify God and to reveal him, right? If we as followers of Christ have been placed in this neighborhood in Fullerton or La Habra or Brea or Placentia or wherever you live, if you've been placed in this neighborhood to reveal Christ, then you have to ask yourself the question, does what I'm being asked to do distort the revelation of Christ? And if it distorts the revelation of Christ, then it's a no. Even if it's other brothers and sisters, even if it's other Christians or presumed followers of Jesus who are asking you to distort the image of Christ, the answer is no. We maintain the image of Christ at all costs. We maintain his glory at all costs. That's the answer. They say yes to some things and they say no to others. First Peter chapter two, verse 11 and following says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation or the day of visitation. As sojourners and exiles, that's what Daniel and his friends were. Sojourners and exiles, that's what we are. Exiles, ambassadors of a future kingdom to keep our conduct honorable. Why? So that when these people who don't hold our values, when these people who worship false gods of money and power and pride and sex and fame and entertainment, when these worshipers of false gods try and get us to kneel before their gods, we know what to say no to. But but, but we live in such a way, in an honorable way, so that they look at us, they see our good deeds, and they honor our Father. They worship and glorify Christ. How do they do that? Well, there's a couple of things here I want you to catch in the last little bit we've got. It's very interesting to me. I'll just give you a couple of practical things in the text. How do they do it? What does their abstinence look like? They abstain from eating the king's food, but look how they do it. The first thing I want you to see is that their choice is a personal one. It says Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He's making a choice to do the right thing, but he's not, he's not necessarily trying to guilt or shame anybody else into doing the same thing he does, right? This isn't him starting a campaign against Nebuchadnezzar or against the chief of the eunuchs. This is Daniel resolving in himself not to disobey God's law. Not only does he resolve personally to do the right thing, which I think each and every one of us must do, But look at what it says also in verse 8. He resolved not to eat the king's food or defile himself. Therefore, he asked. If If you're taking notes in one of the journals, I would underline the word asked. Circled, he asked. There's an act of submission there. He doesn't tell the chief of the eunuchs. He doesn't insist. He doesn't go on a hunger strike. He doesn't fight the chief of the eunuchs. He asked. He went to the chief of the eunuchs and he asked. If he could be allowed to not defile himself 
I think this is the way of Christ. I think this is the humble and generous spirit of Christ who is compliant with the authority that God has placed over him. He asked, that's the first thing I want you to see. It says this in verse nine, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Even in the midst of the exile, even in the midst of this punishment, God is still giving. God is still there. Yes, God gave them over to their enemies, but now God is giving Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So what's the second thing I want you to see is that he's endearing himself to his captors. Not only is he, is he demonstrating personal resolve, but he's endearing himself. God is endearing him to his captors. It says, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, verse 10, I fear my Lord, the King who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the King. The chief of the eunuchs comes back and goes, hey man, I like you and I've got compassion for you for some reason. He doesn't know that God gave that to him, right? I like you and I've got compassion for you, but if I do this thing and I don't let you, I don't make you eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, then the bottom line is when the king assesses all of you down the road, you guys are going to look scraggly and weak and kind of scrappy and I'm going to get in trouble and I'm going to die. I don't want to die. So the answer is no, right? The chief of the eunuchs says no because he's afraid for himself. I want you to see here that I, I think Daniel cares about the chief of the eunuchs. He has compassion. Not only does God give the chief of the eunuchs compassion on Daniel, I think Daniel has compassion on the chief of the eunuchs. He doesn't, he doesn't just set this aside. He doesn't say, well, who cares about your life, chief of the eunuchs? I'm doing the right thing here. I don't care about your life. No. He hears that and he, takes, he goes one step down the ladder. He goes down the ladder to the steward that had been assigned by the chief of the eunuchs and he proposes a test. He proposes a test. Verse, look at verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who ate the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. I want you to see here, not only is he sensitive to the eunuch's concern, the chief of the eunuch's concern, not only is he personal resol personally resolved, not only is he gentle and submissive, but he proposes a test that demonstrates his confidence in God's power. He proposes a test that demonstrates the fact that he knows, even though he's there as a punishment, even though he's in Babylon because his people have been wicked, that God is still there, that God still cares, that God is still present. And, and note here too that the test he proposes is a test that will build, most importantly, faith in God, but secondarily will build faith in Daniel. The way Daniel does this builds faith in God, and in Daniel, what's he doing? He's, he's laying a platform of demonstrable faith. He's laying a platform of exactly what James talked about. He's being a doer of the word. He says, let us have vegetables and water and then test us to see. He's putting his faith in God's ability to come through, which will increase the steward's faith in God and in Daniel. Note, notably here, I want you to note, uh, well, let, let's read on and see what happens here. Uh, it says that the, the steward agrees to that. 14, the steward listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As a side note here, I just want you to see that it says right in the Bible that eating vegetables makes you fat. Eating vegetables makes you fat. That's why I don't do it. That's why I don't, don't you keep your, keep your broccoli or your asparagus or whatever it says right here. You eat vegetables, you'll get fatter than the other people around you. 
Here's the important thing to note. At the end of this test, look at verse 16. The steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Because of the way Daniel does this, because he does it in humility, because he does it in compassion, because he does it in faith, ultimately the steward is persuaded that God's plan is better than his plan. The steward is persuaded that God's plan was in the steward's best interest. That God's plan was in the chief of the eunuch's best interest. That God's plan was in Babylon's best interest. And that doesn't happen because Daniel is cursing and shaking his fist and fighting the system. It happens because of a humble, submissive, compassionate, full of faith approach. At the end of the day, his pagan overlords look and go, huh, his God's plan is better for us than our plan. That same thing happens in our world today, can still happen in our world today. Ultimately, the king tested and found them better than all the others. But look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Let me tell you what, this doesn't have to do with the individual aptitude of these people. It has to do with verse 17. God gave them wisdom. God gave them understanding. God gave them insight. I said at the very beginning of this message that sometimes when, when we're in the midst of conflict and turmoil and pressure and division and anger and fighting and whatever, that it's easy to go, where is God? Is God here? Is God in this? Does God see me? Does God know? Does God care? The answer is all through this. God not only gave them to their enemies initially, but then he gave them favor with their enemies. And ultimately, he gave them everything they needed to influence a pagan culture. Not from the outside in, not that outside conformity. It's not Daniel and his friends trying to force the Babylonians to act like Hebrews. No, it's the same way it works individually. Ultimately, what we'll see in this book is that Daniel and his friends transform Babylonian culture from the inside out. From the inside out, just like it happens in our own hearts. From the inside out. It's why we are called to live a life that looks like Jesus, that reveals Jesus. In the same way that their trust in God transformed them from the inside out, God is using these young men to impact the pagan culture, not through outside force, but through internal compassion. We can't force faith or holiness, but we can live such distinct lives in our world that those who see us will willingly choose to seek what we found. Proverbs sixteen seven says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 1 Peter 3, 15 says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. I would love for us as a church family, as followers of Jesus this week, to look at our response the, the, the decline of Christianity in our culture to, to the uh, increasing um, minority role we play. And I would want to ask you in the midst of this, do you believe that God is still here? Do you believe that he still gives? Do you believe that he still has an expectation and a purpose? 
I will tell you that we don't have any idea what's going to happen. We don't have any idea what the future holds. But there is something we can be confident of, that God is in charge and that God will rule and reign, that God sees us and he knows us. I love this last verse and I'll finish here in verse 21 of Daniel 1. It says, it says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That might not mean anything to you yet, but it will as we proceed. What Daniel's telling us here in the last verse of chapter one is that Daniel will actually outlast the Babylonians. The Babylonian culture, their kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, his sons, those guys are all going to go away. They're all going to die. They're all going to be assimilated. And you know what will be left at the end of that assimilation? Daniel serving God. Daniel served until the first year of the king of Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of the Medes and the Persians. I want you to understand, my friends, that because of the power and the providence of God, because of his goodness, we don't have to be worried about the church. We don't have to be worried about God's people or God's purposes on this planet. Nothing should shake us because the reality is that that the church will stand at the grave of the coronavirus. The church will stand at the grave of these political parties. The church will stand at the grave of America. The church will stand at the grave of every power and every authority and every false God and every false mindset and every false worldview. At the grave of all of those, the church will still stand, not because we did the right thing, but because he is God and there is no other. And when you and I answer the theological question correctly, then the practical questions all make sense. We can live humble, contrite lives, compassionate lives. But as long as we're answering answering the theological question wrong, as long as we think we need to be God because God's not doing his job, then we'll always screw up the practical answers in the midst of our exile. We may be in exile, but God is on the throne. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would take this word like a seed and that you would plant it in our hearts. That it would grow and produce fruit that would glorify you. We do live in a heavy time. We live in a time that is complicated and when tensions are running high and opinions are heated and there's so much fighting and whatever. God, would you give us a humble and contrite spirit? Would you give us a heart of compassion? Would you give us a heart of submission? Would you give us a heart to reveal you and to glorify you in whatever circumstance we find ourselves? To recognize with Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel that we don't need to conform to the culture, that we shouldn't, but we also don't need to fight the culture, that there is a middle way in which the culture is transformed and that is when we live like you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.